take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and our text this morning will be verses 6 through 11. We've been working our way through this letter. As we come to these verses this morning, we're, we're dealing with the same themes that we've been, we've been looking at, the same warnings, but perhaps from a different angle with a different emphasis and some different instructions for us this morning that can be applied to our life. But we have, as we have looked at this letter, this letter, if you want to know what the letter is about, it is about the supremacy of Christ. It is about the greatness of Christ, that Christ is better, that Christ is perfect. And we have looked at this, that Christ is greater than the angels. The author makes that argument and moves on to how Christ is greater than Moses. And this morning we begin to see a glimpse of how he is greater than Joshua. As this congregation of fledgling Christians facing persecution were tempted to look back upon the old covenant for rescue, the author makes the point that Christ is greater, more perfect, and better than all of those things. And we've seen this through the call to enter into God's rest, to enter into the rest of Christ. And we've been given an example from Psalm 95 of what happens when you don't trust in Christ, when you don't rest in Him. We're given an example of what happened to those that did not believe upon God and how they failed to enter the rest that God had promised them. And this morning, as we look at this text, we're given a command of striving. Last week, the command was this, let us fear. Now, how is it that we live a life of fear before God? It is that we strive to enter into that rest that God has given us. And so the command that we see in the text this morning is this, is let us strive. And so we're told why we must strive and how we are to strive and what we are striving for. The text shows us these things. So let us hear the word of God. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 6. Since then... Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Beginning in verse 6, we are given a wake-up call to those that might have embraced initially Christ, but were thinking about departing from Christ. There's hope for them. And if you've considered Christ, but have not received Him, we see the text tells us this, there's hope for you. In fact, it tells us in verse 6, it remains for some to enter. There remains time for you to still choose Christ. 
I love how the text says it remains for some to enter, meaning there's still a period of time for you to make that choice for Christ. And this whole entire argument from Psalm 95 began with the words, Today, if you hear His voice, you are to respond to Christ. So today, if you hear the words of the Gospel, it is for you today to respond to it. And you have time to respond to it while there still remains a promise open to you to enter into that rest. And so there's a group of people that are being addressed here that claimed Christ, that have familiarity with Christ. They might have professed Christ. And what is the author of Hebrews, which is, which is probably Paul, doing? And what is he saying to them? He's pleading with them to consider their salvation. Have you truly trusted in Christ? Have you truly rested in Him? Have you truly accepted the Savior? There still remains time for you to do so if you have not. And so God, the Holy Spirit, would be pleading with us this morning. There remains time for you to enter this. You need to consider these things. Maybe you have a familiarity with Christ. Perhaps you have professed Christ even, but haven't fully embraced Christ. There's good news that there remains for some to enter it. He goes on to say that those who had formerly received the good news failed to enter it. That's the warning. There comes a time, there comes a point where you will no longer be able to enter. It says that the former, those that formerly had received good news, meaning that they heard good news, they had even maybe perhaps embraced good news, but yet they did not enter into God's rest. It could be a group that you could say they heard God's word, and they might have even said, yes, we believe God's word, but what does the text tell us? They did not enter God's rest. This is looking back upon the wilderness generation. When Moses gives them the law, and what did all of the people say in regards to the giving of the law? All that you tell us to do, God, we will do. We will do it all. But they didn't. They heard. But they did not believe. They failed to enter God's rest. And you'll notice what it says. Because of disobedience. Now this brings up a a conundrum. We are justified by God's grace through faith alone, not by works of the law, lest no man should boast, right? We do not believe that works contribute anything to our salvation. And we don't believe that works can take away our salvation either. But what does the text tell us here? It says that they failed to enter God's rest because of disobedience. Why why is that? Well, if you just back up to chapter 3, verse 19, and I, I know we've looked at these verses before, but just as a way of reminder, it gives us the root of their disobedience in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They could not enter because they did not have faith. What is the result of not having faith? Well, it tells us here, they heard the good news but failed to enter because of disobedience. What is the fruit of faith? It's fruit. 
What is the fruit of unbelief? Disobedience. And they failed, to be- they failed to believe, and because they failed to believe, they were disobedient. We have to understand something about disobedience and the connection uh, that, that is being made here to faith. The faithful live obedience lives. Unfaithful do not live obedient lives. It's that simple. If you are in Christ, you live obediently to Christ. If you're not in Christ, you do not live obediently to Christ. Notice what the Bible tells us about those who are not in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 2, it says, in verse 1 actually, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, those that are not in Christ are uh, described as being sons of disobedience, and it says that they follow the course of the world, that they actually follow Satan, and they are described as being sons of disobedience. Why? Because they do not believe. What is the corresponding result of not believing in Christ? Disobedience. Paul makes the same argument in chapter 5 of Ephesians. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So there's a, there's a categorization that's taking place here. There are those that are known as being sons of disobedience because they do not have Christ. And then there are those that are no longer that of a son of disobedience. And the text here in chapter 5 or 6 specifically tells us that the judgment of God is going to come upon them. Here's what we have to know. If you are in Christ, the judgment of God has already been taken in the cross. The judgment of God for disobedience has already been taken by Christ upon the cross. That's why those that are in Christ cannot be called sons of disobedience. Because Christ has removed that. We have to see this connection. There is a, this rampant idea that if I just believe in Christ... I no longer have to worry about obedience or disobedience because we're not saved by works. That is anti-biblical. We're not saved by works, but that doesn't mean that works are not produced in the Christian life. They absolutely are. Jesus tells us this. Jesus says, if you love me, just feel an emotion about me. No. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, if you love me, you will, that is a future active indicative verb saying this will be what happens, you will keep my commands. Jesus says in Luke, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I tell you? Jesus defines our love to him in how we respond to his word. 
Obedience flows out of a life connected to Christ. And disobedience flows from the life that is disconnected from Christ. That is why we can say that they failed to enter into God's rest because of disobedience. Because they did not trust in God. This connection is so crucial for us. Christ for us for justification, Christ in us for sanctification. What do I mean by that? If Christ is in you and Christ is in union with you by way of His Spirit, there is going to be an effect on your life. If we believe that we are in vital union with the Creator of the universe by faith, there must then therefore be a corresponding change in us. We know the Scripture says we're given a new heart, we're given a new mind, that the old nature is dead, that we are a new person fully in Christ. But do we consider this fact that if we are in union with Christ, Christ is in us, and Christ is in His righteousness is flowing through us and changing in our lives that we live a life of obedience. So many... People today, and since the time of the apostles, will say something to abuse this grace. They'll take Paul's words, Romans six fourteen, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. People will say, see, we're no longer bound to obedience, we're no longer bound to law because we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. That's not what Paul is saying there. Paul is saying we are not under the law as a means of justification. But he's not saying that we're not under the law. In fact, he says the law is good if it is used properly. We're not saved by the law. We're not sanctified by the law. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a law that God has given us that we are to keep. That we are to live lives that are obedient. So often, people think, well, I'm under grace, not law, so I'm free to ignore the law. But that's not Paul's intentions when he says that. He says that we're not under the law as a means of justification. So this brings up the question that we must be faced with. This wilderness generation failed to enter into God's rest, as it tells us in verse 6, because of disobedience. So here's the question that we have to wrestle with, that the text forces us to wrestle with. Can I live in habitual sin and still be saved? Let me ask it another way. Can I say, yes, I've heard the message of Christ, and I agree with it. But I reject Christ's word for my life. Can I still be saved? I'm not asking whether Christians no longer sin. I couldn't count how many times I've sinned this morning. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking whether a Christian may go through a season of backsliding. I'm asking this, is can someone say, yeah, I love Jesus, but never actually truly embrace Jesus? The the text is telling us no. The text says no and has been telling us no. 
number of years ago, I was witnessing to this man. He was about my age, and I was sharing the gospel with him. And as I got to where I was pressing him for a decision, he said, oh, I made it. I made a decision for Christ. I don't need to, I don't need to make a decision for Christ. I said, Tell me about that. He said, yeah, years ago, uh, I, I was at church. I heard a preacher preaching. He, he asked me to, to pray to accept Jesus into my heart, and I, I, I said that prayer, and I'm good. And I said, oh, well, tell me about it. What's gone on since then in your life? Never went to church. Life was a complete mess. There was never any fruit in his life. Now, I'm not the judge of his human heart. I don't know what took place in his heart. But my words to him and my words to be with anyone that would think that way is, I would be in fear that you're not saved. Because he who begins a good work in you sees it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And my words to him, as my words would be to anyone, Look, if you have said, I receive Christ, but you don't receive his word and you don't receive him, you're not truly receiving him. You don't know Jesus. So when we look at this words and say, oh, they failed because of disobedience, but we know that we're not saved by our works, so we can just brush this off. No, I I think we have to actually look at this. Those that would just brush off disobedience and claim grace I don't think they've ever experienced grace. And this point becomes all the more forceful when we consider what's being used as the reference point is Psalm 95. And why do I make that point? Why do we keep coming back to Psalm 95? Well, the text actually just continually repeats Psalm 95 over and over again. What was Psalm 95 about? It was about that wilderness generation that failed to enter the wilderness. But the thing is, is the wilderness generation did not write Psalm 95. David did. And we're told of David, that David was given rest from all of the surrounding enemies from in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. We're told in the text of Scripture, David had rest, but then David writes something here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion. Today. In other words, David's saying, yeah, we may have rest from our enemies but we have not entered that rest. David warns of that very thing to his generation, and the author of Hebrews warns us of that same warning. David was speaking to those that thought they had entered the rest, and he confronted them. And likewise, God today, as he did then, confronts us with something more than just a temporal rest. You know, they looked at how they had gotten the land. They're under David, Israel's greatest king. And we see that they had conquered their enemies. They had rest. But what were they focusing on? They were focusing on all of the earthly things that they had gotten rather than recognizing actually the earthly things was a foreshadow of what was to come, of something greater, something better, something perfect. So as we think about this today, as time remains, 
do we focus on what we receive here and now as a sign of God's pleasure or blessing upon us? Is what we receive now, does that define God's promises to us? Do we measure our faith by how things are going in our life? That's what the wilderness generation did. That's what David's generation did. If we do, perhaps maybe we're closer to that generation of the in the wilderness than we think. This is why it says in verse 7, again, he appointed a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards, hear the words, so long afterwards, after they had entered the rest, David says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The same goes for us today. Let us take note of their example that is written for us. The author then moves on to show us that there is a better rest ahead of us, beginning in verse 8. Notice what it says in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, there's a, there's a better rest, there's a greater rest that is being promised This is speaking to those that may be looking back on the Old Covenant and they they look back on how Joshua was used by God to conquer the land and how Joshua and Caleb were the brave ones that says, there's the land, God's giving it to us, let us just take it. And they're thinking, boy, we're facing persecution right now. We'd sure like a Joshua figure to come into our lives. Someone that could conquer our enemies before us. But I want you to notice what the text says. It's not clear in the English. For if Joshua, the Greek says, for if Yesu, for if Yesu. So if you're reading the Greek, it would be the exact same name that we read for Jesus. But it's not speaking of Jesus, the Son of God. It's speaking of Yesu, Joshua, the one that foreshadowed the Son of God. This is an important thing to recognize here. Because here's what we read about Joshua and the land. In Joshua, in chapter 21, in verse 44, we read these words, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. And just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 23, verse 1, it says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, the text tells us that in Joshua, they were given rest. But what does the text say here? For if Joshua had given them rest, meaning he didn't actually give them rest. And the play on words is so important here where it tells us that first one named Jesus was not able to deliver rest. You see, Joshua was just a type. What do I mean by a type? It means he foreshadowed Christ. He was a picture of what Christ would do. 
He was a picture of what Christ would accomplish. But he wasn't Christ. He foreshadowed Christ. He was a type of Christ. Joshua was used of God to bring God's people into the land flowing with milk and honey. Into a land where all their enemies would run from them. Where they would have the fruit of the harvest and the fruit of the womb and enjoy the blessings of God. And Joshua was the one who led that and commanded that. But Jesus, the Son of God, leads His people, those of the new covenant, actually into a greater rest, a heavenly inheritance, a heavenly rest. So what this means is this, is what Joshua gave was insufficient. What Joshua gave was incomplete. What Joshua did and who Joshua was was amazing. But it pointed to something greater. Actually, Joshua is infinitely less than Jesus. Joshua nearly, merely just pointed to something greater, to something better, to something perfect. That's why his name was Joshua. Joshua might have delivered them to earthly blessings, but they were insufficient. By the way, earthly blessings are insufficient. The earthly points to something greater. When we look at this, we have to ask, where do we place our trust? In whom do we rest? Is it the material earthly Canaan? Or is it the eternal rest promised of Zion? They were tempted to look back upon Joshua as their Savior What are we looking back on as our Savior? If it's anything but Jesus, we're looking at something infinitely less. So it says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now pay careful attention to the language here. Another day is speaking of something else. That's coming. And what do we see in verse 9? It says that another day is, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people. Just look at that grammatically, what that's saying. There is a Sabbath rest remaining for God's people. It's interesting, this is the first time that you see the word Sabbath in the text. And he's been speaking the whole entire time about not the Sabbath, but about what? Rest. So why all of a sudden does the language change? And the subject change from rest, which is speaking of something eternal and future. Yes, we receive it right now in part, but it's actually something future. It's eschatological. It's when Christ returns at eternal rest. Why does he then say another day remains and then says Sabbath? This is actually speaking of the Christian Sabbath. What is it? Verse 10 tells us, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. 
What did God do on the seventh day? He ceased working. He rested on the seventh day. So when we think of what the Sabbath is and what the rest here on the Sabbath is, it's a cessation of work. It's a cessation of work. And notice what it says. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why is that? Well, why did they get the land and get to enter into the rest through Joshua? Why did Moses lead them? Because they were all pointing to something greater. What is the Sabbath rest for the Christian today doing then? It's pointing to something greater that awaits us. Many debate whether the fourth commandment is still binding. Let's read it. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 8. says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the Sabbath was originally practiced on Saturday, but we know because the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the first day of the week, on Sunday, he entered into his rest from his work. Which is why we celebrate the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, on Sunday, in commemoration of our risen Savior. Because it's, the day is now on Sunday doesn't mean that the command of the Sabbath has disappeared. Actually, if we say that we hold to the Ten Commandments, what's included in the Ten Commandments? The command to practice the Sabbath. What we're told here is that there is a future eternal rest, but also a rest today that we are to recognize in anticipation of what is going to be for all of eternity. Now, if you struggle with that, about the idea that the Sabbath is still in effect, but we practice it on Sunday, let me just call in a couple witnesses. John Owen, the preeminent of all the Puritans, wrote this, His use of this word, framed as it were, coined for this purpose, that it might both comprise the spiritual rest aimed at, that is that eternal rest, and also express a Sabbath keeping or observation. The Baptist, A.W. Pink, says this, quote, Here then is a plain, positive, unequivocal declaration by the Spirit of God. There remaineth, therefore, a Sabbath keeping. In other words, what this text is telling us is that we actually 
in somewhat like the wilderness generation, get to practice something that foreshadows something greater. We think of the Sabbath that way today. We think of the Lord's Day that way. I think that we, we've established there's that remaining call to practice the Lord's Day and the Sabbath. But to whom is it directed? Notice what it says. This is for God's people. It's for the people of God. In other words, that God gives us this for our benefit. I was just reflecting upon this this last week, and I was thinking back to it wasn't too long in the distant past that this was probably taken much more seriously, where you would see this in stores being closed. I asked my research assistant, my mom, about this, and she told me about blue laws, where businesses, by law, couldn't be open except for those of acts of necessity and mercy could be open on Sunday. Why was that? It seems like generations before us maybe took this more seriously than we do today. Now remember, it says that they failed to enter the rest because of disobedience. I just want to kind of see these connections here. How do we treat the Sabbath? Look at it from two different ways. External. That's on the outside, what what happens. Is the Sabbath a priority to us? Or do we place things of worldly concern before it? I saw something this morning that said, may church be our excuse to not do other things and cancel other things, rather than other things being our excuse to not go to church. Is it a priority to us? How we treat the Sabbath is a testimony to what we think about God's command to to worship Him, what we think about God's plan for our life, and how we may enjoy life. But it also draws in the question of His goodness towards us, doesn't it? If God says, hey, I've commanded this for you, for your benefit, but we disregard it, what are we saying? Well, God really doesn't know what's good for us, do we? Does He? He he doesn't know. I know more about how to achieve rest than God does. Remember when Jesus taught about the Sabbath, He said the Sabbath is for who? Man. It's a blessing to God's people. You know, consider for a second with me. When was the last time that you heard it emphasized that we should take seriously the Sabbath? Could there be a connection between, just think this through with me, could there be a connection between society as a whole loosening up on Sunday, stemming from the church's attitude towards the Sabbath? Just think about what Hebrews tells us about this. One of the means that God puts in place 
that we will enter that rest is one another. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, there's this community connection where we're to exhort one another. Now, if I'm exhorting other people, I'm not thinking about myself. So in other words... Your sanctification and my sanctification, my growth, your growth, our perseverance is directly related to one another. Meaning, I need you, you need me, we need one another. It says this, we're to do this every day. As long as it's called today, we're to be meeting. You think about what the author says in, in Hebrews chapter 10, says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does the text tell us we're supposed to do? Now look, I, I, this is not just a, a preacher saying, hey, you need to be in church. This is God saying to his people, you are to set aside a day and worship me. And it is in a community of people. It is in the church. That is what God is commanding us to do. You think about it. This has been played off and, and abused so much in the church. Do, do you realize that we are the most heavily medicated society in the history of mankind? Can't sleep? Pill for it. Can't wake up? Pill for it. Depressed? There's a pill for it. Can't pay attention? Got a pill for you. We're the most heavily medicated society in existence. But notice what God tells us. He has told us, for my people, I have commanded a day of rest. Do you think that maybe part of our problem is that we don't take a day of rest? We think we're so sophisticated. How busy are you? Well, number one thing I hear about people that, living in, in California from so many people is we're just so busy. The way of life here is just so busy. It's nonstop. It's nonstop. It's nonstop. God says, hey, there's a rest. You can take a rest every week. Think about me. That's not an external. What about the internal? Why is the Sabbath so important to Christian? Let us consider this internal application. Mere observation of the Sabbath is not what God wants. He doesn't want us just going through the motions. In fact, doesn't he chide Israel for that over and over again about how you just bring sacrifices to me, but I don't want your sacrifices. What does God want? He wants their heart. Where is our heart on the Sabbath? And we might think of the, the practical applications of rest, but do we approach the Sabbath as this? This is what we get to experience in anticipation of what we will have together for all of eternity. Look, if you're in Christ, you're stuck with me, and I'm stuck with you. It will be for all of eternity. And we get to experience right now, one day a week, an imperfect and a shadow 
and a picture of what we get for all of eternity. Think about the sweetness of resting on a Sunday. Think about joyfully reflecting upon what Christ has done. That only gives us a glimpse. You see, on Sunday, we're called to rest, but we know it only imperfectly right now. Where our body may rest for a moment, your mind doesn't, does it? Never shuts off. Where we may be able to sit for a moment to take a break on Sunday, we're still anticipating the next day where we'll be standing, aren't we? We might close our eyes for a moment, but we know that when we close them, the next they're going to be open to whatever is pressing upon us. So we recognize this day is just a glimpse. But it means we still have to anticipate that day where I can rest fully and surely forever. It's a rest from work, just as God rested from His work. That's what it says in verse 10. Just as God rested from His work. Some people say, this is a, a rest from working out righteousness. Well, God didn't have to rest from righteousness or works of the law, did He? It's speaking of a cessation of work. But if we have a cessation of work and we have a day of Sabbath rest that is for right now, that means in the meantime, what am I supposed to be doing? Work. John Owen, quote him again, he says this, Our labor makes our rest sweet, and our rest makes our labor easy. So is God pleased to fix us and exercise us all to prepare us duly for eternal rest with himself? So yes, we must be working now so that we may enjoy that rest. Christ has commanded us to go into all nations and to make disciples. We do that here, we do that abroad, we do that with our neighbor, we do that with our loved ones. He has called us to worship Him. He has called us to provide for our families. He has called us to love God, to love neighbor. He has called us to work. In fact, we were created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. We are to be working. And you know this all too well. But what if God said in a foreshadowing of what is to come, I designed you and creation itself for a day of rest from your work. So enjoy it now and enjoy me. So I guess the question is this, and how we think about the Sabbath is this. Not do I enjoy the Sabbath, but do I enjoy the Lord of the Sabbath? Do I enjoy God? John Bunyan says this is how we should spend our Sabbath day. He says, quote, Make the Lord's day the market for thy soul. Think of that word. Make the Lord's day thy market for thy soul. Let the whole day, he says, be spent in prayer, repetitions or meditations. Lay aside affairs of the other parts of the week. Let the sermon thou hast heard be converted into prayer. Shall God allow thee six days, and wilt not thou afford him one? Great words. We have this final warning in verse 11, directly connected. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience.
You see, while there is coming a day of eternal rest, we are to strive in the here and now and enter it. What does this striving look like? Well, I think the author describes it in chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and here it is, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run the race that's set before us? How do we join with Paul who is straining forward towards the prize? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is our striving to enter that race, is to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So like Paul, that pushes forward with all his might to finish the race faithfully. Let us strive, lest we should fall as those before us. Let us rest in the Lord, in his completed work upon the cross. Let us rest in his perfect life. Let us rest in his keeping of the law on our behalf, because we can't. Let us now rest in Christ. That is strive. That is the fear that we're told we are to have that we are called to have as part of the Christian life, where our, our gaze is always upon Christ. Just as the bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness and all who looked upon it would be saved, let us keep our gaze upon Christ. How do I strive to enter that rest if my gaze is upon Christ? That is what we're called to do as we are to look upon the one that was raised on our behalf, the one that completed the law on our behalf, the one that lived the perfect life on our behalf where we could not live the perfect life, and we are to rest in Him by setting our gaze upon Him. And the reward? Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. That is what is promised to those that are in Christ Jesus. In the Lord Jesus Christ, He gives you His righteousness that you may stand before God as being holy and you have in part entered into that rest now. But the rest we experience now is only an anticipation of what will come perfectly later on. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he offers rest for the church even now. Father, I pray for those that may not know Christ, that you would call them, that they would trust in the Lord, they would call upon him in faith. We thank you that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that He is the assurance of our faith, He is the hope of our faith, and that, Father, in Him we look forward to greater things to come. It's in His name we pray. Amen.